So I grew up in a family that really loves to eat. Now, I know a lot of people can say that. I bet if I asked for a show of hands, who enjoys a good meal, most of our hands would go up. But there's something special or sick, depending on who you ask, about the way that my family demonstrates that love. For example, we plan holidays sometimes six months to a year in advance, just kind of talking about what we're going to eat on that particular day. (laughs) We send photos of meals we've made to one another, which I know people do that. If for some reason you can't make a holiday meal, you are reminded throughout the course of the night through videos and pictures of why the meal you're consuming is nowhere near as delicious as the one you're missing out on. And if you decide to host a holiday or simply bring a dish, you'll be thanked, but you will also be critiqued as if you were a contestant on Chopped. And I'm not even like, I'm not exaggerating. It's stressful, but everybody brings their A game, so you know you're going to eat well. Now, along with all that, we also love recommending restaurants to one another. Now, there's the initial recommendation. you got to try this place. But then there's the, if you go, you got to, and, you know, fill in the blank. For example, in college, I asked my uncle, he happens to be a chef, the best spot for Chinese in Chinatown. Without flinching, he said, I needed to try Wohop. But then he pulled me in closer, and he said, you got to go downstairs, not upstairs, and you have to order the steamed sea bass. I kid you not, I still remember that meal, and it's been at least 20 years. My entire family, another example, loves Spanos in Point Pleasant. If you've gone there, it's phenomenal. It's a wonderful restaurant. We hadn't gone yet, so Deanna and I, we made a reservation maybe a year or so ago. So obviously, I told my entire family on our text thread that we were going. Within a few minutes, I get a text from my cousin, and he tells me, order the rigatoni with garlic and oil for your side. It's special. I now preach that same gospel to every single person that goes to Spano. What's the point, right? If I went upstairs at Wohop and ordered spare ribs or beef with broccoli, I would have had a great meal. And if I ordered spaghetti with marinara at Spano's, it would have been delicious. But what both my uncle and my cousin were trying to give me was a deeper and more memorable experience. They wanted me to not just enjoy the meal, but for the meal to have a shaping and lasting impact on my life. And I don't even think I'm exaggerating when I say that. That's truly what they were looking for. Now, this all relates to what we're going to talk through this morning. I promise you. I promise you. But I want you to hold on to that for a few minutes, and we're going we're gonna to deviate, and then we're going to come back. So at the beginning of 2023, we walk through the first section of John's Gospel, a section referred to as the Book of Signs. We wrestled through deep theological categories like the incarnation of Jesus. We saw him perform miracles at the wedding of Cana. Scott Stangley highlighted the compassion of Christ as he engaged with the Samaritan woman at the well. We saw Jesus turn five loaves of bread and two fish into a feast for over 5,000 people. And finally, we were reminded of one of the most miraculous things Jesus ever did as he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
Now, all of this and everything we're going to cover in the next few months as we walk through the final nine chapters of the book, it was all recorded by John, one of Jesus' closest friends, for the purpose that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. In other words, John wrote his gospel so that people might become followers of Jesus and so that followers of Jesus might experience an even deeper and more fulfilling life with God. If you remember, one of our core values is life with God. This, this, this life that we've been called to, to cultivate so that we might walk with God more deeply, so that we might know him more deeply, more intimately. Spanos is great, but if you really want to experience its greatness, you got to try the rigatoni. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 13. We've called this series the Book of Glory. It's what this section of John is typically referred to, and it's called that because Jesus' saving work, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation is repeatedly referred to as his glorification. Now, this section is fascinating because John takes nine chapters to cover the events of just a few days, whereas the first 12 chapters of John take us through the entirety of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so there's a lot packed into these chapters. It goes into depth, the events surrounding the passion of our Lord. So with that, let's jump in. Verse one says this. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So right here in verse 1, there's a ton. We could have actually spent the entire morning on verse 1. The first thing that stands out is this time marker. Before the feast of the Passover. Now, there's a little bit of debate around the ordering of the events in John's gospel compared to the ordering of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're actually not going to look at that this morning. That's, we're not going to dig into that debate. If you're interested in it, I can send you some resources. Let me know. What's more important is John's mention of the Passover, namely because he wants us to be thinking about it as we work through the rest of the passage. Now, for those of you who've been around the Bible and Christianity for a while, you probably know that the Passover meal was instituted to commemorate God saving his people from their enslavement in Egypt through the killing of a lamb whose blood was then sprinkled on the doorposts and lintels of every Israelite home so that God would know to pass over these homes when he came to judge Egypt by killing their firstborn children. In other words, John is deliberately associating God's saving work through the slaughtering of those lambs with what Jesus is about to do in our passage. And what Jesus is about to do in our passage is wash the feet of his disciples. Now notice what else it says in verse 1. It says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, this concept of Jesus' hour, it shows up throughout John's gospel. 
It shows up, I believe, 16 times total. The first six show up in chapters 2 through 8, and they're always used to either point out that the hour has not yet come, whether that be the hour of Jesus' departure or some eschatological hour in the future. But in chapter 12, things start to shift. The hour is now here. Now what's really cool is how John uses the term in chapter 12, verse 23. And and I have a slide for chapter 12, verse 23. And if you were here during our Advent series, this is going to remind you of how Isaiah flipped our understanding of what it means to be high and lifted up on its head. When he used it to describe the suffering servant, John's doing the very same thing here with this concept of glory. Check it out. It says in John 12, 23, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, right? The text then says just a few verses down in verse 27, and I have a slide for this as well. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus is troubled. He's troubled at the arrival of this hour. And and that's a little confusing at first glance because all of this sounds like good news, at least according to chapter 13, verse 1. He's going to be glorified, which that sounds pretty cool. He's going to be back with his father, which, again, that sounds like a good thing. And the reason why he's going to be with his father is because by the time he gets there, he would have loved them to the end. He would have loved the people that he came to save to the end. Or better, he would have given all the love he had to give. That's what it means when he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He means he loved them completely. By the time he arrives back with his father, the love that he was intending to lavish upon his people was complete. Like there was nothing lacking in the love that he was lavishing upon his people. But what's troubling is that Jesus understands the means and manner by which his glorification his reunion with his father and his complete unleashing of love upon the world is to be accomplished. And in his humanity, he's terrified. He's terrified. Yet at the same time, He'll argue in just a few verses that following his example in all of these things, these things that are terrifying to him, will lead to a life of blessing. You just tracking with what's going on here? Are we all on the same page? The thing that Jesus is trying to articulate and that John is trying to capture for us is that true glory equals sacrificially loving God, neighbor, and enemy. That's where we're heading this morning. That true glory equals sacrificially loving God, neighbor, and enemy. So let's keep going. Verses 2 through 5. goes like this. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. 
He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, for all of you grammarians, you're going to enjoy what we're about to do. First, the controlling verb in this section is found in verse 4. He rose, right? Look what it says in verse 4. He rose from supper, all right? Which means verses 2 and 3 are modifying that particular verb by telling us when he got up and why he got up, okay? So we know he got up, but he also wants us to understand when he got up and why he got up. So let's start with the when. He rose during supper and after Judas and the devil had conspired to betray Jesus. Now, there's a ton we can talk about right there, but we're not going to get into it. There's a ton about sin and temptation, and I actually think I'm going to send out a sermon that Noah shared with me this week by a guy named Sinclair Ferguson that I believe will be way more helpful than me trying to dissect all of this in a matter of three minutes to get through the rest of the passage. I'm going to send that out this week. But the point is, is that the events that are about to happen, Jesus rising up and washing his disciples' feet, they happened during supper and after Judas and the devil had conspired to betray Jesus. Now, an important aside, if we zoom out, the text seems to indicate that Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed by Judas. We see that in verse 18, and we see it in verses 21 through 30. That matters. So hold on to it. What about the why? Why did he get up? Or why did he rise? Well, that's laid out for us in verse 3. Check it out. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. That word knowing, it's a participle. And when you encounter a participle in the text, you're forced to interpret it. What makes the most sense contextually and grammatically is to interpret knowing as a causal participle. Are you guys tracking with me? We're all here? Because we're doing some grammar here. We're doing all the stuff that you loved in middle school and high school, right? Which means we should read the passage as follows, and this is incredible. Check this out. Because Jesus knew that the Father had handed all things over to him and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from the supper. He laid his outer garments, and after taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him because of the knowledge he had. So we got to ask a couple questions of the text. What did Jesus know? What did he know? Well, he knew exactly who he was, and who he was was a pretty big deal. He possessed all things, according to verse 3. So there was an authority that he had. He was well acquainted with his origins as one who had come from God. And he knew that he was going back to God. In other words, Jesus was fully conscious at this moment of his messianic role and identity. All right? He was fully conscious of his messianic role and identity. Now, how does this knowledge, 
relate to him washing the feet of his disciples? Well, first thing, washing feet in the ancient world was literally the worst, okay? It was the worst job anybody could have. People walked the street in sandals, the same streets that animals used for their restroom, the same streets that citizens used to dump out whatever waste they produced in their own households. It was a job that was literally reserved for slaves. Second, the grammar of the sentence indicates that the reason why Jesus washed his disciples' feet, why he took on the form of a slave, it had everything to do with what he knew about himself, his authority, his origins, and his messianic role and identity. Do you hear what I'm saying? In other words, Jesus gives of himself, serves in the lowliest of all capacities, not in spite of who he is, where he comes from, and why he came, but because of it. You, you track with what I just said? He doesn't take on the, the, the role of a slave washing the grit, grime, and, and, and waste off of his disciples' feet in spite of who he is. He does it because of who he is. And he not only humbles himself to this lowly position for those who love him, but he also does it for those who hate him and have already betrayed him. This is phenomenal. This is phenomenal. Also, it's an encouragement to know grammar. <laughs> but see, see what's happening here. See, what we're, what we're encountering in this small little display is the true story of the world, the true story of creation, of how in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first. How in God's economy, being high and lifted up means bearing the marks of the cross for the sake of others. Of how weakness is actually strength and humility is the truest form of glory. And what is most remarkable about this passage is that Jesus not only demonstrates this toward those who are easy to love, easy to care for, easy to be with, but he includes in this lavish demonstration of love one of the most vicious enemies of God to ever bear his image, Judas Iscariot. The entirety of this event can only be described as an unthinkable act such that none of us would ever dream of being a part of. Judas was there. We cannot forget that Judas was there. Because Judas being there ought to shape our entire approach to how we live our lives in the midst of a wicked and crooked generation. Judas was there. That's tremendous. And the implications are enormous. But like I said, this was an unthinkable act such that none of us in this room would ever dream of being a part of or approving in. And that's actually exactly how Peter felt. 
And it's how most of us feel when we really start to consider the implications of this thing that we call Christianity. Right? Let's set the scene a little bit. Peter's watching this all play out. One by one, Jesus moves around the room, washing the dust, grime, and waste off the feet of his disciples, Peter's friends. By the time Jesus gets to Peter, the water in the basin is probably gray or brown at this point, and Peter doesn't understand. Lord, do you wash my feet, it says in verse 6? In our vernacular, maybe, Lord, are you really going to wash my feet? Are you really going to stoop this low? Now, Jesus understands why Peter doesn't get it. Look what it says in verse 7. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. He understands that Peter has been shaped and formed by a social imaginary that flies in the face of everything he's watching unfold. Peter believes that might makes right. Peter believes that status and, status and prestige walk hand in hand with royalty. It's the social imaginary that was unleashed into the world when Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent into thinking that grasping and self-promotion were the tracks that would lead them to glory. And it's the same social imaginary that permeates the very air we breathe, shaping and forming us into a people who believe, as Peter believed, that kingdom expansion happens through things like political power, beautifully crafted websites, celebrity influence, rock star worship teams, instead of simple, ordinary, and faithful things like praying together, serving the poor, bringing meals to one another, mourning losses together, opening our homes and lives to those most people wouldn't be caught dead with. But see, we got to dig a little bit deeper here because Peter's not only questioning this scene, he downright hates it. Look at what he says in verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. Now, if we translate that literally, it's super clunky, but it says something like, never, not ever, will you wash my feet into forever. <laughs> something like, there's no way, not in a million years, will I ever let you wash my feet. Now, this isn't some sort of humility that Peter's putting out there. He's, he's saying that there's no way he can see himself being associated with something so low, something so disgusting. Peter's like, no, not my king. Right? To which Jesus responds. If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. In other words, if you can't accept that your Savior is taking on the form of a slave, then there's no way you'll be able to accept it when he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is flipping the entire system on its head. In stooping down to wash the feet of his disciples, Jesus is pulling back the curtain and tangibly revealing what ruling and reigning truly looks like. 
He's saying to Peter, you want power, you want glory, you want strength? I bid you come and die so that others might live. Right? If husbands are called to be the heads of a household, then we ought to lead by washing feet. If pastors are to shepherd the flock among us, then we do so by washing feet. If Christians are to inherit all things, as it says in the Beatitudes, then we do so through meekness, humility, by washing feet. When considering what leadership ought to look like in the marketplace, the church, the White House, we do better to look to Christ rather than the Greek or Roman pantheon of gods who led through violence, rage, and might. Who is washing feet? Vote for them, right? I can't help but imagine that in that moment, Peter's mind was flooded with the entirety of Jesus' three-year ministry. Every teaching he gave, every miracle he performed, all of it was finally starting to make sense. All of the seemingly crazy things Jesus said about the poor and broken being blessed. The need to love and serve our enemies. That strange conversation he was having with the Samaritan woman. Peter was starting to understand that this king and this kingdom was different than anything he had ever come into contact with. And whether he understood it or not, he's finally recognizing, I want to be a part of that. So he cries out, not my feet alone, like I need a bath. Like my hands and my head. Now, Jesus goes on to explain in verse 10. Look what it says. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. What Jesus is communicating there, that that once you are cleansed, you do not need to be cleansed again, but we will need to keep our feet clean. In other words, and without picking the verse apart to explain it completely, God's saving work in our lives is a one-time event. At the same time, We will, until the day we die, need to confess and repent regularly, if not daily. But our salvation's secure. But what Jesus is about to articulate is that, yes, you are mine. Oh, but there's a better way. And this is something we all need to hear. We all need to hear. Because there are matters that are not necessarily questions of salvation, but they are questions of what it means to live the Christian life to its fullest, to experience the deep blessing of God, to, to, to have the rigatoni with garlic and oil, right, instead of the marinara, right? Follow me here for a second. We're going to get there. Now, Jesus addresses the entire room. He asks a question. At verse 12, it says, do you understand what I have done to you? Or do you understand what I have done for you? In other words, do you understand that in washing your feet, I'm showing you the sort of kingdom that I am about to unleash into the world? Let's read what it says, verses 13 through 17. You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example 
that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, the first thing Jesus makes clear in this last section is the fact that he is their teacher and Lord. In other words, he's in charge, right? He's the boss. Jesus is never relinquishing that, okay? Because that's important for us to recognize. In, in doing the things that Jesus does, he's not relinquishing his authority. No, he's fully leaning into it, okay? It's just the problem is, is our understanding of what authority is. But Jesus is so clearly articulating the reality, he's in charge. If I'm your teacher and I'm your Lord, then because he's the one in charge, he sets the expectation. And the expectation is that they would follow his example. That's what he says. He says, if, then you're, if, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so the point that Jesus is making is twofold. One, in explaining what he's done, Jesus is making clear that he's setting the example for them to follow. If he has taken on the form of a slave, then they too are to take the form of a slave. Why? Because they're not greater than their master. Now, Peter had a one-on-one -on -one tutorial in this just a minute ago, but now he's talking to the whole group. The second thing Jesus is doing is he's setting the table for what is to come in washing their feet, in taking on the form of a slave. Jesus is hoping that when they see him get arrested in just a few short hours, beaten like a criminal, and ultimately see him hanging on a cross, between two enemies of the state, suffering a, de a death that was reserved for the worst offenders of the empire, that they'll remember that just a few short hours before this all went down, the man's hands that were now pierced through with nails on a cross were the same hands that pressed into their feet, that wiped away the dirt and grime and dried them off with a towel. The entire point of this foot-washing scene is to direct our gaze toward the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then the shocking thing, he says, go and do likewise. Follow my example. Now this begs the question, does Jesus mean that we're supposed to literally wash one another's feet? I honestly don't believe that's the takeaway from this passage. I don't. There are traditions that do this, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But if that's the only thing we take away from it, we're missing the point. In verse 15, Jesus says that he has given us an example. Now, that word example can be translated as model or pattern. Think of a blueprint for the musicians in the room. Jesus has given us a key and a time signature, but we're free to take the melody wherever it goes. For the athletes, think of this as a coach's system. It's not necessarily a set play that we have to pull off specifically, but rather a system that we are free to work within creatively. In other words, as scenarios come up, we know that the key 
time signature, and system all revolve around humility and sacrificial love. But how that plays itself out will depend on who we are, the gifts we have, and the need that's in front of us. Catch that? We have this freedom. We have this incredible freedom to sacrificially love in a way that that fits with who we are, that fits the scenario, that fits the individual we're serving, but the key in the time signature is love as Jesus loved. And so that is such a helpful like, pattern for us, right? Because we can take it and we can map it onto everything. And so, so we can map it onto our relationships with our children. If, if something's happening in our home, we can think, okay, I know I need to discipline my child. What does it mean to discipline them knowing that I am called to sacrificially love them in humility, in meekness? And, and, if, we, and if we look back at Ephesians to, 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 to mutually submit to them, right? And, and in our marriages, if we're in a conflict with our spouse, we can, we can think through, okay, I, I understand that in this situation, I need to map on this game plan, this system where I humbly and sacrificially love them. And that's going to look different there. With our political rivals, we can think about this. Okay, I don't agree with their ideology. I don't agree with their ethics. But God has given me a system, a key, and a time signature, which is sacrificial love and humility. So how do I demonstrate? it in that context. It applies everywhere, and it's really helpful. It's really helpful because it, it now starts to reshape. It doesn't mean you have to just agree with everybody. It doesn't mean that you have to just fall down like a, like, a, like a mat and let people walk all over you. That's not what it is. What Jesus is saying, I washed your feet. I took on the form of a slave. I sacrificially love in humility and meekness. What does that look like in your context? What does that look like in your problem, in your struggle? And then we get to be creative. And then we get to actually help one another in that, right? And we can actually point out to one another, well, actually, you're, you're playing with a different playbook right now. Like, think through how you're engaging with your wife or your husband. That's not the playbook God gave us. Think about how you're engaging with that person online. That's not the playbook God gave us. So let's, let's talk through it. You, you, see, you track with what I'm going here? I just think that's helpful. I think it's helpful that he's literally, he didn't say like, you must do it this way. He said, here's some freedom. Now, now use wisdom. That's what, this is a passage of wisdom. And I'm going to prove that to you in just a second. So check it out. We're in. So, right, in other words, as scenarios come up, We know the time signature. We know the key. And they all revolve around humility and sacrificial love. Now, here's where it gets really cool. As you can see, I'm really excited about this passage. The passage closes with something that has become one of my favorite bits of New Testament theology. But before we look at it, I want to quiz you. All right? You ready? If you're in Chinatown and you want a special and memorable meal, where do you go and what should you order? Wohop, where do you go? Got to go downstairs, and what are you ordering? Okay. If you go to Spano's, and you are asked what you want to order for your side of pasta, thank you. All right, good, good. Now, you are blessed for that. The steamed sea bass downstairs at Wohop and the rigatoni with garlic and oil are the ways you can take an already delicious meal and experience and experience it in its fullness. And guess what? That's the point of verse 17. Yeah, 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 check it out. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, what are these things? First of all, these things refer to the example that Jesus just called us to follow. A life where we willingly submit ourselves to the world around us in sacrificial love and service to them, even if they're our enemy. That means political enemies, ideological enemies, those who hold different views on sexual ethics, reproductive ethics, familial enemies, or just plain old enemies, people we just don't get along with. Jesus then says that if we do that, if we do that, if we structure our lives like that, use that pattern, use that model, use that blueprint, that time signature, that key, then we will be blessed. What does that mean? In other words, we will experience a deepening in our relationship with God, a flourishing and fulfillment in our walk with Christ. To be blessed in the sense that Jesus is speaking about here is to experience whatever it is that you are involved in to its fullest. You catch that? To be blessed in this sense is to experience whatever you're involved in to its fullest. I tell my students this at Ambassador because we were working through the Beatitudes, and, and this is the word blessed, right, that we deal with. And, and I might even call on Tim to tell me what it... No, nah, I won't do it to you. Um, so, so imagine you're, you're a surfer. Anyone surfing here? Awesome. Anyone ever surf? Anyone body surf? We all body surf, right? Because that's easy, right? So say you're body surfing and, and, and you want to experience that, that moment perfectly. Do you swim into the wave so it crashes on top of you? No, Anna's shaking her head like, no, that's stupid, right? That's not body surfing. What's body surfing? When you go with the current of the wave. And, and if you really catch a good wave, that experience is wonderful, Right? Because you're just moving through the water. And some of you even, you know, you are skilled enough to body surf all the way to the shore. Meanwhile, I'm there with like, you know, my hair on my face and like, like snot dripping out of my nose. But, but the point I'm trying to make is that to experience the fullness of that moment is to ride with the current of the wave. To go against the current of the wave is to not experience that moment to its fullest. You're still body surfing, but you're not really, right? Like it's not as good. That's what it means to be blessed in the biblical sense. It's, it's referred to as a macarism. It's the same word, like I said, used in the Beatitudes. And it's the same word Paul uses in Acts 20 when he quotes Jesus saying that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let me ask this question. How many of you can think of the best gift you gave this past Christmas? Right? Think about it. Now, how good did it feel when the person you gave that phenomenal gift to, because you put thought into it, you maybe spent, spent a little extra money on it, maybe you saved up, maybe you went without something so you can purchase that particular gift, and then when they opened it up and you saw their face, what did that do to you, right? It was good, right? Felt good, right? And I, and I would venture to say that it felt better to do that than when you got the best gift you received right? Why? Because Jesus has structured creation in such a way that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. And you know what else it's more blessed to do? To wash feet. 
You see what he's doing here? He's saying, if you want to live life to its fullest, if you want to experience your walk with Jesus in the deepest sense, then get on your knees and wash feet. Serve others. Love God, love neighbor, love enemy as yourself. And you will experience the fullness of God. The fullness of what this life has to offer. Jonathan Pennington, New Testament scholar, he describes it like this. A macarism describes the truest way of being that results in happiness and human flourishing. So, if we model our lives after this pattern of washing feet, sacrificially loving and serving God, neighbor, and enemy, then we will experience happiness and human flourishing. It doesn't mean everything's going to go swimmingly, but our walk with Jesus will grow exponentially. Right? To cultivate a life with God it absolutely requires sacrificial love and service of God, neighbor, and enemy. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying. In other words, if we're looking to experience true human flourishing, if we're hoping to live our lives in a way that cultivates a deep sense of what it means to be truly happy, then we must pattern and model everything we do after the structure of God's good creation, a structure that produces fruit in and through us when we give of ourselves for the sake of others, sacrificially and humbly loving God, neighbor, and enemy. That's what Jesus is putting on full display for us. The pattern of God's good creation is structured this way because that's who our God is. And we bear his image. And so what do we know about God? Well, the scriptures teach us that God is love. Our own passage teaches us that Jesus takes the form of a servant, not in spite of who he is, but because of who he is. And in Philippians 2, we're taught that it is because Jesus was in the form of God that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. It is the triune God's nature to humble himself and give of himself so that we might experience freedom. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave. It's the very pattern that rescues us from sin and death, and it's the way of life that leads to the deepest and fullest walks with our God. Sure, you can go to Spanos and get the marinara, but it just won't be as special you won't actually really experience that meal to its fullest. We can be Christians who adopt the, the broken social imaginary that might make that might makes right and prestige and ma majesty are the marks of royalty, or we can entrust ourselves to the ethics of the upside-down kingdom that promise blessing, flourishing, and a depth of relationship with our king that is beyond our comprehension. Jesus bids us come and die. He calls us to pick up our crosses and he promises us blessing when we stoop down to the position of a slave to wash one another's feet. We have to remember the cross is the source of our forgiveness and it's the shape of our formation. 
It's the source of our forgiveness, and it's the shape of our formation. This is good news, and when we embody it, we are being used by God to extend the hope of the kingdom. That is such good news, and that's what God has for us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for a passage like this that just so clearly reveals who you are. That so clearly corrects all of our misunderstandings of what it means to rule and reign and bear your image in this world. Help us, Lord. Show us where we're fumbling the ball here, Lord God. Help us apply this model, this blueprint, this time uh, signature and key in all of our contexts, Lord God with our families, with one another here at Redeemer, with our opponents, with people who we are utterly disgusted by, Lord God, help us to move toward them with this model, with you. Father, help us to demonstrate to the world what you are like as we love one another, as we love others in both word and deed, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. God, we love you so much. Lord, I know I need to hear this. I know I need to wrestle through these things. I'm sure all of us need to wrestle through these things. And I'm sure we even have people coming to our minds right now as we wrestle through these things of who we need to demonstrate this sort of love towards, Lord God. Help us, Lord. Thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to walk with us and, and empower us to do just that, Lord God, to walk in those good works you've prepared. God, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.